0: Hi everyone, I'm Lockie Mansell, and it's great to have your company for another episode of Check and Flag Chat. This week I'm chatting to Phil Alexander, an undisputed veteran of the Aussie motorsport scene. Now, how you think about Phil will probably depend on how old you are. If you were around in the 70s and 80s, you'll recognise Phil as the king of the Mazda Rotary scene in Sydney and you'll probably remember the Group C RX-7 he raced at Bathurst. If you're a bit younger, you'll know Phil for his exploits in endurance races like the Bathurst 12-hour and the Nürburgring 24-hour. And if you're a bit younger still, like my age, you'll know Phil as the guy who laces out race cars and prides himself on bringing new people into the sport. Well, we've covered all of these aspects of Phil's motorsport journey in this podcast. So, let's get into it. Phil Alexander on Checkered Flag Chat. done so much over a long period of time that when people think about phil alexander i think one of the things that comes to mind for a lot of people would be alexander rotary which was the business that you had in five dock for many years and in more recent times it's become occupied by Rick Shaw. but your involvement in cars and in motorsport goes back even before that we go right back to the 1970s how did
1: you actually first get involved in the automotive industry well, I was a bit of a scallywag and raced around the streets of Earlwood, which uh, we couldn't do now, and bumped a couple of guys that turned out raced minis, and one of them was uh, probably lesser known, but a, a pretty good wheel, Lynn Brown. And it was a real outside thing that I, I bumped these guys, because one of them, when I used to walk on the way home from school, there was this mini sports sedan in the gutter, just on a trailer waiting to go to the next meeting. And then that happened to be where he got all his cars done. So as it turned out, I just sort of got to know those guys, but I really wasn't part of the motor racing scene, although I was keen on it. Moving forward, I ended up about a couple of years later getting a job at Eurocars, which was a Mazda dealer, Probably the prominent or most prominent Mazda dealer in New South Wales, let alone Australia, that also had the NSU rotary franchise. NSU rotary engines were falling out of the sky, closely followed by Mazda rotary engines were falling out of the sky. So everyone in the workshop used to take a turn at repairing the rotary engines, whether they be under warranty by Mazda, by NSU or whatever. As that next person got a bit crook, me being the beginner, they said, well, it's your turn again. So because I really didn't have a predetermined view on piston engines, rotary engines, I ended up getting all the rotary engine work. And at times, we were doing nine engines a week. So by the time we'd done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, over a three or four year period... Uh, we're getting fairly handy at it. The other thing is, because it was in the city, there were a lot of businessmen that took to this rotary engine car and use it for motorsport. So naturally conversations turned that way. How do we get more power? Blah, 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 blah. And there we started to modify, uh, port the engines, find a way to get more carburation onto the engines. So not... I wasn't the only pioneer, but I was one of the very, very early guys that, that really got involved with them and uh, started to extract some good power out of these engines.
0: So just to give us a bit of a sense, so at this stage, you're really just a kid, aren't you? Fresh out of school and fry hide, bushy-tailed, and probably the sort of age where you're getting up to a bit of mischief and you're trying to do different things. And of course, when you're a kid, one of the, the first things that comes to mind is how do we go faster? How do we make more power? You know, if you can somehow do that while making sure the thing
1: doesn't blow itself to
0: bits, then that's even better.
1: Yes, well, that's that's correct. And another thing along the way is I met a guy named Ron Gillard who was working at Newtown and one of the very few shops in Australia that had a a chassis dyno, and this place was full of race cars. So like moths to a flame, I used to hang around and hang around and hang around and make a nuisance of uh, myself. And then one day he said, we're racing at Catalina. Can you come and polish the car? Of course. So that really sort of set the, uh, the flame alight. And as we worked through the rotary engine scene, the, 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 the guys racing them or, or doing club works, they'd come and have a hill climb or come and have a go at Orem Park. So because I bumped some race car guys, but not having actually raced, I knew it all. And the more I knew, the more I didn't know. So (laughs) uh, a lot of it just came about by sheer doing the laps and then talking to these guys to tell them how clever I was and they've gone, man, you're so slow. So uh, (laughs) we had to take some instruction Ron Gillard became a very, very good mentor and blow me down if uh, some nine or 12 years later, he didn't accompany me on the Bathurst 1000. So go back to the early years. So we're talking very early
0: 70s at this point. So the sort of rotary cars that were floating around (coughs) at that stage, that
1: would have been Mazda RX2s, RX3s around that time? Yes, also many R100s. And I was actually a member of the uh, Mazda car club that was very, very uh, active in those days. And used to do a lot of work for the uh, enthusiasts that belonged to that, uh, that car club. And I remember at Amaroo Park, they had a, a three-way race of a uh, track day around Amaru Park track. They had a hill climb and they had a dirt circuit. And also they had a motocana circuit. So being very clever, I was showing someone how to do a handbrake turn in a Mazda R100. Mazda R100s were renowned for toppling over. I knew it all, pulled the handbrake on, fell into a pothole, and over she goes. Very embarrassing. So anyway, moving on, I ended up being able to purchase a lot of cars because at that time, the rotary engine, if it was out of warranty, it was quite expensive to do. So there were cars scattered all over the country. And a class of racing called Junior Touring started up. And it was done by a guy named Russell Grimson that worked for the Selby's organisation way back then. And it was for under two litre cars, such as Twin Cam Escorts, Cooper S, Fiat 850s, 10 ARX3s. And that looked a really good thing to me. So one of the cars that I had was just a bog standard thing that we had to run Avon tyres. You could put shocks in the car and exhaust, and I think that was about it. Uh, You had to run a a basic roll cage, uh, seat belt, fire extinguisher, and that was about it. Fortunately enough, uh, the first 16 races uh, we did at Amaru, I believe that I took the chequered flag. There was a bit of discussion about legality, but I hadn't even got into the engine at that stage. So then we moved on, and then I was helping a guy run a production Mazda RX3. I ended up purchasing that car, and that became my Group C RX3. And moderate success, but still very dumb at this motor racing business. So I think just to put things in a bit of perspective, back then
0: there were a lot more club and local level events and probably a bit less organised events than what we're used to these days with state and national championship type race meetings. So there were opportunities to do a lot of racing throughout the year in lots of different types of cars without actually necessarily needing to travel too much. So you've mentioned Amaru, you've mentioned Orin Park, did you ever race a Catalina
1: in Consumer? No. Oh, well, actually, actually, I did a super sprint there in an RX3 Coupe. And it was probably towards the very end of its days. But it was a super interesting track. And because some of the older guys that I hung around with, they said, this is how you got to do it. So fortunately, I took their advice because I was getting a bit smarter by then. And, and uh went all right in my little RX3 coupe. It was a 12A car. Uh, it was, it was, Yeah, it was great, but that was the only opportunity I ever had to uh, compete there. At what point, obviously, you're
0: starting to, I suppose, forge a bit of a reputation at being able to work on rotary cars and get performance out of them and make them reliable, and if they're a bit stuffed or they've been abused, being able to buy them and fix them up. At what point did this actually start to become a business venture for you with the, uh, the Alexander Rotary Workshop?
1: I would say that after the junior touring, the, the class sort of morphed into street sedans, which became a very, very, very big arrangement. And I've seen consequent pictures of a grid of 30 cars and 29 are rotary engine-powered cars. And probably 20 of them we were involved with, even though the, the, the rotary engine was starting to come a little bit easier for people to understand or just by nature of people buying them and pulling them to bits. But we had a fairly strong business in, in prepping the race cars for that uh, and branched out into some production type cars with rotary engines, primarily rotary engines. Mm, so are we talking sort of late 70s at this stage? Or? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. it would have been, and 80s. We, we went into the uh, to the 80s, but, but before that probably 74, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then I started to get into the production cars. I uh, bought an RX-7 that I ran uh, in some production car races, a Series 1 RX-7, and at that time I think a guy named Russell Scaife Mark's father, he had a Series 2, first of the new Series 2s. But we took a decision one day to convert that into a a Group C peripheral port car. So that was the end of its production car days. So
0: the decision to convert it to Group C, was that because you wanted to race in the Bathurst 1000 or was it just you'd got to a stage where you decided that You'd achieved everything that you, you could achieve in production cars at that stage and you were ready to move
1: up to the next level. No, not really. The, we had the Group RX3 and we wanted to run it at Bathurst, but they wouldn't let a, a, a peripheral port engine run, so we had to run an old-style engine and still go in the same class. So my road car sitting in the driveway we had six weeks to go, and the, the ARDC guy, Ivan Stibbard, he rang us and said, well, are you going to enter? And I looked at a couple of the guys who were the pit crew. He flipped the coin, came up heads, so, okay, let's go. So we entered, and we made the car in six weeks, uh, and then off we went. Wow. So, <laughs> I mean, even back then, the Bathurst
0: 1000, that's a huge event. Pinnacle of Australian Motorsport. How was the vibe when you rocked up? 1981 it was, your first Bathurst 1000 with Ron Gillard, who, as you mentioned, had become a mentor of yours. How did you feel? Like Talk us through that initial experience of competing in
1: Australia's greatest endurance race.
0: Well, I must
1: say that the first lap that you ever do of Bathurst is something you never forget. That is something I press upon some of our people that we coach on the way there. You'll never forget it because... It won't ever happen again. But back then it it was not overwhelming, but it was a different circumstance. It was a level much greater than I had been used to, not so much Ron Gillard because he'd run a few events at previous times. He'd actually driven with John Goss in a Jaguar the year before. Ron Gillard? Yeah. Serious? Yeah. I didn't know that. I know he used to run alphas with... uh, with Gordon Rich, he used to own Fred's Treads and a few other few other guys. But um, we, we were stepping into the the a, gra- the a game and I think the car was of about a Z-type quality. <laughs> it wasn't very good.
0: <laughs> was that just down to a lack of experience and a lack of budget compared to the top-level teams?
1: Oh, yes, we... I was quite naive at the uh, at the effort and energy and so and organisation associated with it. Though, Ron, I must say, and, and some of the fellows that he brought with him certainly uh, helped pave the way, which showed by the next year we we kind of went alright. We started to get the story.
0: Yeah, well, just to put things into context, so that first year, nineteen eighty-one, you didn't finish the uh, the car, obviously. No, uh,
1: no and and it was the typical. 20 cent or 50 cent part but that's that's how it was but in all honesty the car wasn't very nice but i may say that that when i went there uh, with with the guidance i've run he got me around but the difference he was noticeably faster and softer on the car i was wringing its neck nearly out of control and he was just driving around virtually with one arm out, of, out the window and smashing my time to bits. So hence the slow down, go faster came into uh, our repertoire because if you slow down, you can gather your thoughts a lot better and then allow you to proceed.
0: Yeah, and that's obviously a valuable lesson that you learned from that which has served you well not only in your driving but also now in the, the driver coaching that you're doing for others which we'll get on to a bit later on. You would go back to Bathurst though, the next two years, 1982 and 1983. Yep. In both of those years you finished in the top 10 outright, 10th in eighty two and 9th in eighty three. So obviously the lessons that you learned from that first campaign in 1981, you've made some improvements and uh, were able to get some good results.
1: Yeah, that, yes, that's uh, that's correct. And some parts that were previously only available to one certain team then started to filter through. I also uh, made a visit to Mazda Speed in Japan in 82 early on and uh, it was rather eye-opening. And the, the parts that started to filter through into Australia had been readily available, such as two-piece tail shafts that we never had, um, group two suspension components that we never had. Certain teams, or only one team ever had that. Alan Moffat's team? I, I didn't say that, but, <laughs> but yes would be the uh, yes would be the answer. And uh, when these parts became um, more readily available, I, I could say, it, it made a huge difference to the car and the competitiveness and... Uh, the speed of the car, and obviously it's for a here as well. Oh yes, yes. I was able to gather up quite a quite a lot of uh, parts from uh, Japan. I even bought one of those close ratio gearbox things that weren't readily available, and uh, freighted it back to Australia. What ended up
0: happening to that car? Because when I went back through in doing my research and uh, looked at the results for 1984. I noticed that Mark Gibbs drove with Ron Gillard.
1: Correct. That was still my car that year. I leased it to the guys because the I had pretty good Takiko sponsorship, but it was an English company, believe it or not, for a Japanese product that were in the throes of either being taken over and they, they chose to reduce the amount of money they could spend. Um, so I, I withdrew and let that go. That... That ended up being on another car that I didn't. I don't think it did much, but the um, the Goodyear car owners uh, arrangement worked very well on the car. They had very strong sponsorship, and they are a victim of a start line crash that uh, with started by Murray Carter. I think coming down ready to line up. Actually, it wasn't a start line crash. It was a warm up crash. And a few cars were damaged, and the race started, I believe, an hour, an hour and a half later. Uh, Our car ended up with a severely bent differential, but because it had um, a floating diff arrangement, it could get through. And they were on for, for a very, very strong position. And I believe an hour towards the end of the race, it broke an axle, which slowed them up. But that car still finished in the top 10.
0: It did. They so, came ninth. So, yeah. yeah.
1: So so in actual fact, our car is probably one of the more prominent RX-7s about, apart from the factory car. You personally,
0: though, so you had a couple of top 10 finishes from the three starts that you made. Yeah. Um, but you'd never get back to do any more Bathurst 1000s after that.
1: I uh, Business and... I suppose family started to uh, uh, interrupt the proceedings there for a while, but um, we did a lot of production car racing after that. Quite a lot of production car racing. I uh, I got the chance to race at the uh, Enduros at IndyCar and some of the twelve, or oh, a lot of the twelve hours. So we we moved over to production cars. It was a bit more economical too for us uh with with what we did in our workshop
0: and i think one of the other things as well when you look at the production car scene in the late 80s and the early 90s a big focus on endurance events like you mentioned um you know you had the 300k races at at winton in particular um and some other circuits as well the Bathurst 12 hour in its original incarnation which came along in the early 90s there were some very, very good drivers competing in production cars in that era, weren't there?
1: Oh well, yeah, yeah. The, the the likes of the likes of Peter Brock, the likes of um,
0: Brad Jones, Brad
1: Jones. I was going yeah. to say, yeah, he yeah. ran. A steering, Peter Fitzgerald. Uh, a lot of lot of strong drivers in those uh, classes, and most of the time we ran. We ran a smaller car. A lot of front wheel drive cars. We ran GDI Suzukis. Uh, GDI Corollas, uh, TX3 Laser, and that enhanced our driving ability, but also the cars were not fragile, but to get speed out of them, you, you had to really be mindful of their um, capabilities. So you have to drive them at about 85% all the time, but you have to drive it all the time.
0: And I think the other thing as well, and it's something that carries on right up to this day, the fact that you're getting experience in front-wheel drive cars, which have a noticeably different technique to get speed out of them compared to rear-wheel drive cars.
1: Yes, they do, and because we've been doing over the last uh, period of time a lot of driver coaching, I've formed the opinion that if you can drive and learn to drive a front-wheel drive car, you have plenty to take with you when you transition to a rear-wheel drive car. The other way around, if you start your your time in a rear-wheel drive car, then you transition to a front-wheel drive car, the ease of that is not so great.
0: And we've seen that, haven't we? There's been some very, very accomplished and talented drivers who've had a lot of success in rear-wheel drive cars who have jumped in maybe for a one-off event in a front-wheel drive category and not been able to get their head around it. And, you know, I think if we look at the current year, one of the hallmarks of the really talented drivers has been the people who've been able to get out of categories like supercars or super two and jump into TCR, which is front-wheel drive cars and very competitive in that.
1: Correct, correct. It, it it's, it's an interesting... Uh, class to analyse the guys that have really got into it and haven't quite made it as opposed to the guys that have done front wheel drive work got into it and really gone well
0: just coming back to the whole production car scene because one of the things that you're heavily involved in and we talked about Alexander Rotary and the fact that you were buying up cars doing them up and then selling them you're getting involved in the motor trade so as well as working on cars you were involved in buying and selling cars as well. Was one of the appeals of production car racing the fact that through your networks, the fact that you could source cars at affordable prices and either turn them into race cars or use them for spare parts?
1: Yes, yes, that was a major factor because the early days of the Rotaries, they, as I said before, they were just quite expensive pro rata to uh, bring up the speed again. So I probably had – I would have had hundreds of rotaries pass through my hands whether I went to retail them or turned them into race cars. And as it morphed along, I ended up having a, uh, a sales shop that primarily sold RX-7 rotary-powered cars and they were had body kits and – fast bits on them and they're really really a nice car to sell because they're extremely popular in the day
0: Let's touch on your Bathurst 12 hour results because you mentioned that uh, you were involved in it and the interesting thing here is that you're one of the drivers who's raced in effectively I suppose we could describe it as all three eras of the Bathurst 12 hour, the original incarnation back in the early 90s then when it came back as production car race in the mid-2000s, and uh, then in what you would describe as its current era as a GT race as well. So the other interesting thing is out of the six starts that you've had in the Bathurst 12 hour, you've raced a different car every time. So a Suzuki Swift GTI, a Corolla, a Laser TX3 Turbo, a Nissan Pulsar Triple S, a BMW 323i, and a Mazda RX-7. The best result that you had... 1994, when you were in the Pulsar with Warren Rush and Jeff Forshaw, you finished second in class behind another Nissan Pulsar that happened to have a certain Craig Lowndes on board. And
1: I think it was Harry Bargawana's car, wasn't it? No, mm.
0: it was the Morris brothers. Oh, the Morris guys, Morris. yes, who
1: raced Porsche currently. Correct. Yeah, that's yep. right. Yep. 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 Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was good. That was really, really good. We... We ran a, a two-litre pulse, so we actually had a pair and uh, Warren Rush campaign one in production cars and I raced a sister car to it, even though they had some nuances and I seem to remember that we, we were in the production car championship right up the pointy end and in that, I can't remember exactly what year, but the Dunlop factory had a fire and couldn't supply a certain size tyre. To, that, that we were running on our cars. And it, it proved a bit of a stumbling block for me because we had to run a bigger tyre than, than what we normally ran and it took me a minute to get used to it. So I, I fell off in the times and one of the killers was we had a run at Bathurst in a production car race, not, not the 12-hour and we had a bit of a skirmish with somebody and it ripped the valve out of my car as I was going up the top of the hill and it was just had to get towed back. So th- that punched a hole, I think, would come third or something. And that was the, the under two and a half litre class of the production cars. But that was its own class in that day. So, yeah, that's, that's life. <laughs> but we certainly learned a lot in driving style.
0: And then, as mentioned, you you came back and did a few more 12 hours as well. You had a bit of a break from motorsport in the late 90s and early 2000s. Obviously, at that stage, family was the focus. You had a few kids, so um, racing was probably not a priority. But then you got back into it in the mid to late 2000s. And uh, one of the cars that you raced at the 12 hour, 2007, it was the on-track motorsport BMW 323i. It was an 836 sedan. I think Gary Minnell owned that car, and I think that car was raced by just about everybody at some stage. And including <laughs> the dog,
1: yes. Yes, that, that car was, um, wasn't was the fastest car in town, but it, it, it got us home, and we had we had uh, Shane Smollin. We had a... a Funny guy called Paul. Paul Stubber. Stubber. Yeah. Paul Stubber has driven everything, including the tractor. Paul Stubber just turns up everywhere. Turned up at Nurburgring twenty-four hour one day. He's sitting there in his pork pie hat. I said, "Hello, Paul. What are you doing here?" He said, "We're going racing." (laughs) So he went everywhere.
0: You're not wrong because we've seen him win national titles in Touring Car Masters or Historic Touring Cars as it was called at that stage. He's even done some Speedway racing, he won the national late model title last year as well. So you're right, he has raced everything including that BMW that everybody else under the sun's raced. And then your last start in the 12 hour came in 2012 when it was starting to become a a GT race by that stage. In it would have been a Rick Shaw owned and prepared Mazda Rx seven with Duvash and Pattiachi, James Parrish and Andrew Bolland, but unfortunately you didn't finish that year. I think there was some rain and did you get caught out at some stage? Uh yes, I crashed. <laughs> so yes, you got caught out by the uh, conditions. Well I was giving you the option to you know, <laughs> make it sound not as bad for yourself as what it was.
1: Yes, well it was uh, it was a situation where uh, Rick Shaw had, uh, had an accident at the uh, Targa, Tasmania, and wasn't in uh, tip-top condition. So I subbed for him and ran the guys. And my, my strong point with the guys in the wet is, please stay off the ripple strips. So they are all being very good. Thank you very much. And uh, there was a safety car. So we got called in. And for some reason, the... Cold slicks weren't, tyre weren't changed for wet weather tyres, so off we go, and that's uh, we were behind the we were behind the pack. So when I was on top of the mountain, the standing water was still standing, and I'm breezing around trying to warm the tyres up, and it sort of got away a bit, and I'm thinking, yeah, I got this, I've got this, no, I don't got it. So what happened is it clouded the wall, hit the back. And finished rolling underneath the, uh, the the what was the bridge at that time, but the pit crew rang me and they said there's an incident up at the up at the top of the hill. Be very careful. And I said I am the incident. They said no 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 you don't understand. There's a, there's a crash up there. And I said I am the crash. <laughs> right. And that was that was the end of that one. So but that's was... the only time I've ever crashed or marked a car at Bathurst
0: not a bad record um, especially I think it was Neil Crompton who said there's two different types of racing drivers at Bathurst. there's those who've crashed and there's those who are about to.
1: Well I, I never run on the uh, on the ragged edge but a combination of slick tires, cold slick tires standing water uh, and very low temperatures it just didn't do anyone any good because when the main when the main pack if you're following the main pack, they disperse the water, mm. so you have a lot more chance of getting tyre temperature, but we were out of kilter with the main pack, so I was just by myself. So you just got to put your hand up and get on with the next job.
0: Not a bad record, though, to do all of those races at Bathurst and only crash once.
1: Well, it's not only the 12 races. We did a lot of production car racing there too, and the odd, the odd mark, but nothing no requirement of panel repairs whatsoever, ever.
0: So that was Bathurst. But during that era, a couple of the other races that you competed in were overseas. So you had the opportunity to go over to the Nurburgring on a couple of occasions in a Mitsubishi Mirage to start off with.
1: Yeah, that was one of the one-make series cars. that was brought over uh, around about... 1990, I think, and run under a Toyo Tyres uh, Sutherland Mitsubishi banner for quite a number of uh, years. Then the cars filtered out, and one Melrose had two cars that he would take over and rent out. So Rick Shaw, myself, Richard Gartner. The Minister for Enthusiasm. Minister for Enthusiasm, and... Can't remember who was else.
0: Peter Lamus or Tony? No, no. no they ran no. another car. No, no, I
1: just can't quite remember the fourth driver. Anyway, uh, so that was all well and good. We didn't get much time to practice because the track's so long. Prior to actually going on your lap, it takes you five minutes to do the short circuit to set a time, then off you go. So your first lap is something like 20 minutes. And they start you for uh, the night practice that they call night, but it's it's only dusk, and you might get three laps because in that time, it's nearly an hour's worth. So we all had limited practice in the night. Following on, the race starts, and uh Richard starts the race. There's only 226 cars that year. <laughs> only. <laughs> only, yep, 226 cars that year. And between Richard Gartner and myself, when it became turn to have a go, we flipped the coin. Richard won. An hour later, uh, unfortunately, Richard's into the side of the Adno Bridge with the headlight on the right-hand side facing the taillight. So when they bring the cars back, they put a tow rope through the centre between the two doors and just drop it outside your pits, which happened probably an hour later. We've looked at it, we've looked at it, and we've gone, okay, let's get stuck into it. So we had a really good team of guys, and by about 11 o'clock in the night, we've taken it for a run, but unfortunately the the front's still pushed over and it's jamming the... Uh, constant velocity joints so they vibrate like crazy i'm the guy in the car testing it so about three three or four turns we ended up getting a a broomstick sharpening it jamming it in the engine mount to push the engine across perfect and it ran (laughs) faultlessly for the rest of the 20 say say the 18 hours It, it ran perfectly
0: Crude but effective.
1: Yeah, handled differently <laughs> one way to the other, but it was great. It was really good.
0: Just give us a bit of a sense of what it's like to learn that circuit because the combined grin and Nordschleife circuit is twenty five point three k's and one hundred and seventy corners. How do you go about learning a track that's so long?
1: Uh hope like all burglary that you do. Well, my first venture into it It was in the night time as we were explaining after the accident damage and the front of the car was was severely damaged so it had just standard headlights no driving lights whatsoever and the standard headlights uh, put to shame by a candle so up the top of the mountain they have a, a about a five kilometer long hill climb and then it goes through the famous carousel and then you carry along the top of a mountain Up the top of the mountain, there's bonfires, there's fog and there's skyrockets going from one side to the other, which would be an Audi team, an Audi supporter uh, shooting skyrockets to a Mercedes-Benz supporter or whatever. (laughs) So...
0: And meanwhile, you've also gone along with really fast JT cars screaming up
1: behind you with their headlights in your rear. Oh air. wow, man! Uh, yes, that's correct. And and I was trying not to die. I must say this: I was trying not to die because I couldn't see where I was going to start with. Anyway, I'm heading along, and I've come across Fritz in his Volkswagen. Fritz must be having a worse time of it than I was. So I've gone past Fritz, and a couple of K's down the road, I see the strobe lights of the fast cars so as you do when about 10 fast cars go past you slip in behind them as naturally as you do and Fritz had slipped in behind them too so we came together but it was flat on flat so it didn't really create a problem for my car but it was a quite a shock because I thought I'd left him behind but I did see a Volkswagen spinning off into the forest So I actually didn't know what happened after that. So I just kept my head down, tried to not die and did my best in the night time.
0: One of the other questions, actually, there's a couple of other things that I want to touch on with the Nermogring 24-hour. So as you mentioned, it was, what was it, 226 cars. So you multiplied that by three or four people per car and you've got a cast of probably a thousand people, maybe more, for, for the number of drivers in the event. I've heard that they, for the driver's briefing, they have to do it in all different languages.
1: That is correct, because people from all over the world are there. First time, I think they were testing the new LFA Lotus, uh, LFA Lexus. Lexus, yep. Yeah, and that car was next to us, and we'd go through the Weybridge and all the little um, mechanics in their Lexus suits, they had the car blacked out and the windows were blacked out and you couldn't see what it was, but it had this unbelievable sound. So they'd bring that car in, for example, uh, they'd do probably two hours, bring it in, all the mechanics get around it and off it'd go. It was a a test day in a race. But yes, the, the, the languages were, oh, there would have been 20 different countries in that race. So then, the next year you would come back in a Mazda RX seven with Rick Shaw again,
0: and Stephen Bournes was part of the team too, wasn't he? Did that you go any better than your first year in the Mirage?
1: Well, it, because of the time in the Mirage, we, we were classed as a non finisher. So that's we just there was that much time off the track. It, it went outside the bounds. But yes, we started. We qualified about car ninety two. And we finished 61 or 2 outright. So, yes, it it finished. It was perfect. Uh, The car ran all day. The organisation was great. And the the car was really, really good. Towards the very, very end, it was getting a bit raggedy because we, uh, in the brakes more than anything. But you have to remember, prior to the 24-hour race, it's probably got six, seven hours of practice around that circuit too so they in actual fact do at least 30 hours of racing Mm. which is a pretty good effort and pretty good preparation on Rick's behalf because the car had just no issues whatsoever
0: One of the other things that I've always wondered about the Nürburgring 24 hour is that because it's such a long track there's a very good chance that you could have different types of weather in different parts of the track so if that happens if it's raining in one spot but not raining in another. How do you work
1: out what tyres you need to be on? <laughs> well, I was a victim of that. In the RX Seven, they have a two-kilometer straight before you get to the uh, the new circuit. And I was going down the straight. And I think this car was capable of about two hundred and seventy or two hundred and eighty kilometers an hour, all stretched out. And in the year before, the the the, the kink was flat out in the Mirage, but in the RX-7 it was sort of a corner at 260, 70 k's. So we're heading to that and there was a a thunderstorm just hit and you have to be pretty careful that you don't jump on the brakes or get off the throttle too fast because it'll just shoot you off. So I sort of gathered myself down to about 200, uh, heart racing, and radioed the guys, I'm coming in for wet weather tyres. And they said, no, you can't because it's dry everywhere else. <laughs> so I just had to keep going. But uh, that, that was quite a um, uh, heart-starting moment. So the answer to the question about how do you work out what
0: tyres to hang on, <laughs> basically it's just luck of the draw.
1: Flip a coin and <laughs> hopefully you get intel. You try and have some spies around the circuit to let you know what's going on, the weather and the fog and such but the other interesting thing that people probably would never realize that in the driver's briefing you're instructed that if there's any medical on any medical service vehicle on the track they are to be considered as a race car <laughs> so you race the medical car it was just mind boggling but that's
0: how they do it of course, they don't have safety cars. Again, obviously, because it's such a long track, it's not really practical to bring a safety car out if there's a crash. So they they slow you down, don't they, for particular sectors? Is how it works?
1: Yes, they slow you down into the particular sector with witches hats. Then if you're going too fast, the guy with the flag belts you on the windscreen. It slows you down. And then the minute that the, the witch's hats are gone, flat out again. And you're flat out into the witch's hats. So hopefully you slow down.
0: <laughs> Is oh, it bugger. a race that you, you would like to go back and do again at some point?
1: Yeah, that, they've, it was pretty easy for quite a while, but they've changed the regulations where you have to do a DTM four-hour race prior now. If you haven't raced it... the
0: VLN, isn't it? VLN race, I think uh, they call them.
1: Okay, that. yeah, yep. VLN. Mm. Uh, and if you haven't done it within the last three years... That's what you have to do but prior you had to do a course that the driver trainer uh, was appointed and he'd take all the new people around and you'd, he'd take you around then you'd drive his car etc cetera, etc cetera. same as what we do over here.
0: They're definitely good to see you back at that event at, at some point. Well, it, it's it's
1: probably past us now.
0: Mm, uh, I know that it's obviously expense and with the GT three cars that are running there now as well.
1: Yeah, yet you, you if you did it for under forty thousand Australian dollars, I think you'd be going all right now. The way that it, the way that it's morphed into, but that could lead us to another event that you may ask about.
0: The Thunderhill 25-hour, which is another one
1: that you've competed in, haven't you? Was that early? 2015, late 2015. Right. We did that. Yeah.
0: What car were you in for that
1: one? We had a Semi-Works 370Z left-hand drive Nissan.
0: So, yeah. So, so. Nissan theme that you've been running with. Yeah, yeah.
1: That was was, um, a team run by a lady. I had two cars and they were super organised. They had their own hauler, as they say. You could go into the uh, the motor home, and it was like a hotel. It was in the it was in the backwaters of oh, four hours north of uh, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, no, no, San Francisco, four hours north, and a little backwater town. But the track is like quite fabulous, and it's eight kilometres long. And it has some some rises in it that, when you go over, you try and pull yourself out of the driver's seat to see what's over the other side, because you just don't have that anywhere else, bar going over the over the top at Bathurst, which you don't hop out of because you used to. So it was uh, quite unnerving, but uh, every car conceivable raced in it. So from a eighty model Honda Civic to uh, Delara, sports car, they had closed sports cars, they had a herd of MX5s, probably 30 MX5s and everything in between they ran from memory about 98 cars started the race and 25 hours, well they like to think it's the biggest or longest race in the world though I think there's one other but it's one better than Nürburgring 24 hours. It sounds like the Wakefield or the Winton 300
0: on steroids when you think about the types of cars that race in it. Who were your co-drivers that year?
1: That was uh, Rick Shaw, Steve Bourness and a, and a pommy guy called Dave Cox who races a 3 BMW in, in enduro races in England. Yep. It was uh, a really, really super good event. In a in a wet situation, I wasn't by any chance the fastest in the dry. I'm embarrassed to say, but in the wet, I ended up having a probably a two-hour-long race with a NASCAR, and it was very very interesting. This car had a herd of power, and it must have been set up for left and right-hand uh, corners, but. It was such an interesting thing because all my segments I ended up with this car, with this NASCAR that we were fairly square on the road. But it was, uh, it was a really great experience because I've never seen wheel work it like it to try and keep this NASCAR on the track. And I, I couldn't really get around him only because it had that much power. He'd hold you up in the corner but then get off in the straights. And the guy driving or that I came across obviously he knew the circuit quite well but it was a really good experience. But you had to be aware of the fast cars and also make sure that the slower cars didn't impede your progress. One of the interesting things was that the organ, not the organisers, but the people that owned the team and the team manager said, if you break down on the track, don't go on the dirt, just park it in the middle of the track. And, <laughs> and all the guys are looking at each other going, what's going on here? And he said, well, they have to come and get you. If you park it on the infield, it could be another four hours, and you you just sit there. So uh, that was an interesting take.
0: Yeah, it's not an event that really gets a lot of coverage back here in Australia, and it's obviously, it's, realistically, it's not an event that's considered in the same echelon as the likes of the Nürburgring or the Le Mans Twenty Four Hour when it comes to the world's great endurance races, but. In Thunder Thunderhill 25 Hour, is that an event that you would recommend to people who want to do some endurance racing overseas? Because from what I've heard, it sounds like it's very accessible and fun event.
1: Easily accessible. The licensing requirement is $100. No cams, no FIA, no nothing. 100 bucks, and you get a NASA licence, North American Sports Car Association. And the track... Organisers want you to come. They want you to race. The, the, the bureaucracy is zero. They want you to race. So if you have a problem, they try and help you. If your car breaks, they try and put you in another car. They want you to race, which is um, a very refreshing uh, view on motor racing because bureaucracy sometimes does get in the road.
0: I think this is one of those events that I need to get myself over for and do a bit of a, an expose on it because it sounds like it's a really really cool event.
1: It's fantastic, and everyone helps everyone. There was a there was an MX five that for some reason had a problem, or the I don't know why it didn't race. And by the end of the weekend, it was a skeleton because there were that many MX fives are having issues that he just said, "There it is, boys, go for your life." And it ended up a skeleton. And Monday morning, it was starting to get put back together. So everyone wants to help everyone there. There's no uh, no hierarchy, and though the manufacturers really want to win, so mm-hmm. th- there is a big push to win. But um, it's it's like a really huge version of the Wakefield 300.
0: Yeah, and. Uh... Anyone who knows me knows how much I love those 300km races that we have here in Australia. Speaking of Australia, we'll turn our attention back to the local scene because while you'd taken a bit of a break away from doing any regular races or championships, and obviously you had a couple of kids, Gina and Carrie, who were doing go kart racing, in 2013 we saw the advent of the Pulsar Racing Series, which came along as an affordable one-make state-level racing series, predominantly based in New South Wales. The Hyundai Excels, obviously, have been very popular, but the the Pulsar series here in New South Wales, since it came along, it's exploded in popularity. And uh, you were one of the very early adopters. When that series was first introduced, you were one of the first people who started building race cars to compete in that series. What made you find the concept of a one night nissan pulsar series so attractive
1: well well it, was, it really kicked off it kicked off in 13 uh, by a group of guys in victoria but it went through a few changes and management and rural uh, upgrades etc and in excuse me in 2015 a well known production car Uh, A guy by the name of Trevor Keane had a car. He built, him and his son James built a car to race that year. And Trevor said, there's a two-hour enduro at Wakefield Park in the Pulsars. And we we started to get really interested in it prior to that, but hadn't done anything because we were still go-karting with the boys. And I said, yeah, I'll have a crack at it. So lo and behold, we win the enduro. And at that time my elder my guy my elder son he'd sort of had enough of go-karts and said well let's let's do a pulsar so from that he started to race pulsars and and we we followed that uh, quite heavily uh, to this point of time I think we've built about 15 of the cars we have uh, currently probably six in stock in various uh Shapes and forms, but the N15, the N14, all with SR20 engines, and we've been a, a great supporter. We've probably used that series to introduce no less than probably 25 different drivers to motor racing. Mm. It's an excellent feeder series, so we we really uh, we really respect it. And that's also in the last few years been through some management changes, and and now the current management. Uh, is showing their worth because the, the grids are now over full and they're getting entries of 50-plus.
0: Yeah, they're having to turn people away because yeah. they're actually getting too many entries
1: for some events. Exactly.
0: Which is a good problem to have. And it shows you what a great series it's become. What? Why? Why is it so successful?
1: I, I would say that, that the Excel hasn't really gone a lot of places in the in the new south wales scene where it's bursting in victoria and probably queensland but i think it's had a fairly reasonable push in new south wales because a lot of the guys in new south wales uh they've had a family and and when they were growing up they had triple s balsars so they put their kids into it they knew they were a pretty good car and initially, it looks like a, a quite an economical class, but as with all things, with freedoms, it, the front runners tend to get away money-wise. But it still teaches you a lot, and being front-wheel drive cars, we use that a lot uh, for our coaching to, to bring new uh, folks along to the motor racing scene.
0: We'll come back to the pulsars shortly because it ties in with your current business activities. But before we get there... I want to touch on some of the people who've been involved in your racing career and within the fraternity, people that you've built relationships with. Now, you've already talked about some of the drivers who you've raced against or raced with, people like Rick Shaw, Jeff Forshaw, Ron Gillard. But in more recent times, you and your family have become quite... Closely connected to the Heath family, Graham Heath and his son, Josh, who've raced in the Pulsars and done a bit of um, production car racing as well. And at this point, I want to touch on uh, your younger son, Kerry Alexander, who tragically lost his life in, in 2014 in a situation which sent shockwaves through the entire motorsport fraternity, particularly the go-kart community and... You know, you, you look at people like Jaden O'Jader and, and Harry Hayek, who were friends with Kerry when he was racing in go-karts, and uh, nobody has a bad word to say about him, and his legacy lives on. Obviously, a very difficult time for you and your family at that stage, but uh, how important was you to have a close relationship with another family such as the Heaths to get you through that difficult phase?
1: Well, that, that, that came about through go-karting, because uh, our eldest son, Gene... And uh, Graham's son, Josh, we used to go to Eastern Creek and do the Wednesday night practice religiously to get the boys up to speed and you form lifelong relationships. And as the guys and the boys progressed, uh, you, you become fairly close to certain families and for some reason he was one of them. Uh, <laughs> and, I, I, and I say that word lovingly. And also Graham decided he'd like to have a, a crack at proper motor racing so we were able to um, uh, do a bit more motor racing-wise, so we shared some endurance drives, etc., etc. et cetera, whilst the boys were still racing. I must say that, that our Kerry, uh, prior to his passing the, the previous year, won the uh, North Shore Car Club um, Junior National Light, and uh, he, when we started, both the boys from go to woe never missed a race meeting. Uh, for any reason whatsoever. So we we were very uh, very well attended to all the, the meetings and that. But sometimes with carts, y- y- you kind of nearly have enough and want to move on or stop altogether. And that was the point that I made every year. I said to the boys, do you want to go next year? And if it was no, we didn't. If it was yes, we'd go again. So it, it's very important to support your children. And it's also, it also takes them or gives them a better understanding of, of life and, and they can lead to many other uh, professions because of what they learn in, in the go-kart stroke motor racing fraternity. They learn a lot of lessons that you just don't pick up at school. Plus it keeps them theoretically out of mischief. <laughs>
0: The, what's the old saying? Get the kids addicted to motor racing and uh, they'll never get addicted to drugs because they won't be able to afford it. Yeah,
1: something like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, and but, I know that <clears throat> Josh Heath in particular, Graham's son, he forms quite a close relationship with you. And I, I think the, the comment that Graham made to me was that sometimes he feels like Josh listens to you more than he listens
1: to him. Wow. It, it, that, that situation happens... Uh, Unbelievably more than what people would think. So my son Jean really went under Graham's wing, and I used to help uh, Joshua. So we we'd be at um, not cross purposes, but cross fatherhoods, as it were. And uh, and and Kerry, he would um, he would scout around and be everyone's friend. But he was at the age of Jade Ojeda, uh, Harry Hayek, and that, they were all very close friends. So it was a shock when uh, when he suddenly uh, passed.
0: Yeah, there are actually lots of very talented go-kart drivers in that fraternity because you had Cameron Hill, who was pretty much the same age as as Gene as well, who's obviously gone on to achieve some very good things within national motorsport. Dimitri Agathos, he's another one who had a lot of success in go-karts and has gone on to be successful in Pulsars and in production car racing as well. So some very talented drivers, but... In 2016, at this point, you're getting very heavily involved in the Pulsars. Gene's racing in it, starting to go well. Josh Heath has um, has had some good results, come close to winning the championship a couple of times. But uh, you were finding that at the track, you were providing assistance and technical support using your vast experience from over racing to other people as well. And, uh... At that point, you saw a business opportunity and hence the birth of Raceway Track Time.
1: Well, yes, it, it, uh, it officially started then, though I feel that because of our prior experience with Alexander Rotary and getting many, many, many guys into motor racing and, and coaching them, even though it wasn't a, a monetary profession, but it was a means to an end to sell cars and to provide services, when circumstances changed and and uh, we came to the Southern Highlands, we had plenty of room to have plenty of cars. So it, it kind of morphed into the Raceway Track Time organisation and since then it's, uh, it, it's taken on a life of its own. Yes, it's been, been very good.
0: And the sorts of services that you offer, you, you hire out race cars for track days or racing events. You do corporate days as well where you might get businesses who want to do some team building exercises, get them all out to the track, put them in race cars, um, make it a bit competitive by looking at what their lap times are, driver development where you help people learn and improve with their driving techniques. But I think the, the biggest success story is that there's a lot of people out there who want to get into motorsport but don't really understand how to get started or what the right pathways are to get into the sport. And not only that, but they don't always have the resources to run and prepare their own cars. Because to run a race car, number one, you need space. And number two, you need to have an understanding of how to work on it. And there's a lot of people who want to go racing but may not have either one of those things. And that's where an organisation like Raceway Track Time comes in and I can speak from personal experience here because I've raced a few of your cars in several different events. I've done the Cheap Car Challenge, I've done Pulsar Enduros, I've done XL Enduros in your cars. And for somebody like me who loves motor racing and has a bit of a budget, I won't say a a huge budget, but a bit of a budget to do some racing at state or club level events, um, you know, it's a a really, really good product that you offer.
1: Yes, we... We, we find that we have to cover a, a lot of uh, racing classes and grassroots level classes. So, we've done a lot with the new circuit at Pheasant Wood, which is, uh, which is a place that's been purchased by Steve Shelley, who owns uh, or who, who is the president of Deputy.com. And he is a motorsport nut. He's spent a considerable amount of money on upgrading a circuit that used to belong to Gary Wilmington, And they run four-hour, seven-hour Euros, plus we do a lot of track work down there, just coaching beginners, coaching guys that have already raced but haven't quite got it. People, as you mentioned, that don't have the wherewithal. With all the home units in Sydney now in the last 10 years, <clears throat> They don't particularly come with trailer space or three garages. So there's a lot of folks out there now that that just can't put a car anywhere. So they'll come and rent one of our cars, whether it be whether it be a, an XL series car, a Pulsar series car, MX5 series car. We've got a huge range of motor cars, some 15 cars that we, we have in rotation all the time. And it fits most budgets and the coaching we we do. It can be one-on-one, it can be from the pit wall. We're very cognizant of the COVID situation, so we have to work within those confines. But it's, uh, it's working quite well. And in the last few years, there's been heaps of guys that have moved on to production car racing, TA2 racing. They've, they've, uh, they've enjoyed the experience they've had, and they've moved up the scale. And a lot of them started to race at Bathurst. So we get a lot of pleasure out of being able to help guys get to the ultimate, and that's Bathurst, apart from all the other tracks that we go to.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch on the road to Bathurst thing momentarily, but let's talk about some of the drivers who have benefited from your experience. So Aaron Prosser, a customer of yours, Mazda RX-8 Cup champion last year. Tim Breta. Front runner, race winner in the Pulsar series. Um, Very, very good young driver. Mark Crutcher, who's part of the massive contingent of racing drivers that seem to be from the young district. So many racing drivers from young. It's unbelievable. Um, He's, like you said, raced in Pulsars and moved up into TA2. And uh, one of the more recent success stories, Jake Lauer, who came into the Mazda RX-8 Cup with no prior racing experience in anything, but through your guidance, you've been able to transform him into someone who's capable of running at the front and contending for race victories.
1: Yes, well, Jake uh, was a surprise package. He he never even sat in a billy cart. So his entrance was uh, quite strange, but his father was a motorsport enthusiast, and it seemed to be a very... Good fit the RX8 Cup, so we've been able to help Jake become the Rookie of the Year and get up the very pointy end. Uh, We were able to help uh, Aaron Prosser, who who is a prior to us helping him. In in some ways, we we weren't uh, uh, full time with Aaron, but he was uh, he benefited from some of our guidance. And he won nearly everything. Every time he put his backside in a car, he's very fast. So we were pleased to have that association. And uh, Jake's actually uh, moved on to doing uh, COVID withstanding the six-hour production car race uh, with our team, along with uh, one of the very few female races that's really on it, Uh, and her name is Brianna Wilson. Now those two folks are going to do the six hour race, but they raced in RX8 car production cars and a lot of the groundwork that we did with them got them to this to the situation where they can race door to door but without having any of the major issues that maybe you see in the Toyota eighty six series. Mm. And, yeah. that, and there's there's a fair bit of panel damage in, in that series, which is not belittling the series. Uh, it's a fantastic feeder series also, but there's a lot of crashes.
0: Yeah, because, so- I mean, getting drivers to be fast is one thing, but then building up their perception and spatial awareness and racecraft and how to perform in door-to-door combat with other cars, that's another skill altogether. And um, with the Road to Bathurst program that you've introduced this year, you're guiding drivers like Ryan Gilroy and Travis Wharton through sprint or super sprint or track day type events where you put them out on the track and the focus is very much on driving technique and lap times, but then you will put them in events like the Pulsar series where they have to race door to or against other cars and also the Cheat Car Challenge at Pheasant Wood where you've got all different types of cars with all different performance levels, on the track at the same time to build up that traffic management and spatial awareness.
1: Yes, that's, that's a skill that has to be learnt, very very hard to get it naturally, and I think it's wise to get them into a grassroots level to start with. As you mentioned uh, upon the spatial awareness, it, it becomes an issue when you are racing door to door because it's very easy to make a poor decision. And our our main thing is that by the time these guys get to Bathurst, we try to take away the opportunity to make poor decisions up there because uh, of the speeds and the conditions up there. It's very unfavorable to poor management. The consequences are severe. Yeah, they are. Yes. So we work through a series of uh, grassroots races national production car races, which these guys also, uh, the people doing the Road to Bathurst, they gain their CAMS licence and they gain an experience where they've done seven or eight different types of car racing and finish up at Bathurst Challenge. So they do a lot of laps up there and it gives them some credentials to be able to look for a drive in for example, the, the six hour and go to a potential car owner and say, Well, this is what I've done. We've done the the program and we've done the good lap times and we've done all this motor racing and we feel that we'd be a nice fit for your car that you were going to do the six hour in. So here I am. So that so that's that's the, the prime aim and it's a managed program that with a fixed budget with a few uh, things that we have no control over. So the people know how much money they're up for and you could spend twice the amount just trying to get to grips. The people don't have to buy a car. They use our cars. And it also allows them to figure out which path they want to take rather than having to buy several different cars to figure out how they're going to go. Mm. So they can move from, for example... Uh, our Apropulsar into, say, our uh, NCMX5, or they can go up to one of our RX8s, or even up to our M3 BMW. And it, there's so many different levels that uh, we're involved with that we, we try to cover most bases. We don't have a Porsche GT3, though.
0: Not yet, anyway.
1: Wow. <laughs> it's probably, probably a bit much for us. We, we, we You have to know... Uh, you have to know your limits, and if we disperse too much, then we can't focus properly on what we have.
0: Is that, though, I mean, you might say that a Porsche jc 3 is a bit too much or a bit out of reach, but if you did have customers who are looking at going down that pathway, forming a relationship with another organisation, and obviously there are a few New South Wales teams that run Cars at that level. Would you consider forging a relationship with one of those organisations so that you can then direct people in that direction if they want to move up to that sort of level?
1: Sure, we already have that situation in place. Uh, should the people want to move on or even uh, transition quite smartly into something like a Porsche, but it's it's a situation where if you learn to fly. I look at it that you have to fly a Cessna and learn it properly before you fly your jumbo jet, and there's some people that try to do that the other way around. And and again, because things happen so fast in one of those cars, even even the minutest of poor decision can be catastrophic. So we try and take that out of the uh, out of the mix. Poor decisions have no place with us.
0: I can speak from first-hand experience here because, like I said, I've raced your cars and I've benefited from your drive development and tuition. And I think one of the biggest things that I've taken away is that you're very much focused on the fundamentals of driving technique, the seat of the pants fail, and, uh, and the basic mechanical functions of the cars. I think that one of the things that we've seen is that a lot of people in the modern era... Get distracted and hung up on data analysis and technology. And in this COVID or post COVID era, one of the things that we're starting to see is that some categories, even at the very top level, like supercars, are actually pulling the data off the cars because it's too expensive and they're looking at ways to minimize the costs. So I mean, from your perspective, is that something that you've always prided yourself on? The only the thing to bring out the best of drivers without an over reliance on technology?
1: Data has, does play a role in ultimate driver and car performance. Please make no, no mistake whatsoever about that. But the way I view it is it's way down the road because if the driver is not at the right or at the right place at the right time at the track, it doesn't matter what data you've got, it it means absolutely nothing. So the basic principles of motor racing, you have to uh, install in the the potential client, in the driver, where they have to be at the right place at the right time, and there's many variables to that. But if you've got a driver going down the middle of the track, missing apexes, not doing the right braking uh, manoeuvres, data doesn't fix that. So COVID withstanding, they they need uh, either to have a passenger with them. They can do it via video. So if they've got the GoPro going, which we use quite exten- quite extensively. And also I use a technique where I take one of my race cars and have them follow my lines or I'll follow them. And then we swap positions and go car about quite a lot. And we find that is really, really beneficial to the driver. So that, that, there are many techniques. Data down the end of the road when the driver is about, I suppose, about 85% competent, you can start to really find the onth degree. But it's not the thing to start with. I, I'm, I'm of that opinion.
0: Yeah, I still haven't learned how to heel and tote properly. I still (laughs) need to
1: practice it. It's a problem when you drive an automatic car on the road every day. Well, funny you say that. It's one of the major problems that we come across because a lot of guys, even out of school, because it's easier, they use mum and dad's automatic. So when you're doing your initial discussion with, with whoever you're talking with, do you know how to drive a manual car? Yes, I know how to drive a manual car, which is fine. In theory, they do, but if it's not something they do every day, you find that their cabin mannerisms are quite wanting. So even to the point of looking down to where the, to see where the gear stick is, that it's in gear. So the simplest advice I say to the father, please buy him a manual clunker and drive for six months, and that'll save you tens of thousands of dollars and it becomes natural to hop into a manual car and change gears, perhaps heel and toe, all these functions. That's the way to do it.
0: Yeah, I remember there was one particular racing event that it was the Pulsar Endurance Race at Wakefield Park in 2017, it would have been. And uh, my co-driver, who shall remain nameless, hadn't done a lot of production car racing. And uh, I remember you were not too impressed because you had to replace a couple of gearboxes over that weekend.
1: Yeah. The, the, possibly, the, um, the for, well, possibly not having had a road licence didn't uh, do anyone any favours and also doing a lot of time in a Formula Ford where flat shifting is part and parcel. And if you flat shift in a Pulsar, um, you break your gearbox. So we went through two. Yes. But I'm sure that's that's all changed now for that particular person who's a lovely person.
0: <laughs> yeah, and has gone on to have some very good results in National Formula Ford. Um, so looking ahead to the future then, what are the plans for Raceway Track Time and Road to Bathurst? Where would you like it to get to, ultimately?
1: Well, ultimately, the, the, the setup that we have is uh, functioning very well. And... It's just public awareness of some of the programs that we uh, we offer. And as, as the word gets out and people get enthused about what they have done and what they want to do with our organisation, the word spreads. And that's possibly the best advertising and uh, source of new customers that, that one can ever want. And there's not very many people that go out the exit gates without a smile on their face. That's, that's really our intention, but also to take away some really good fundamental parts of how to race a car and how to do it safely but also competitively without breaking the machinery. And for your own racing,
0: obviously the raceway track time and being at racetracks and running around and helping everybody else and then working on cars, it takes up a fair bit of time, but um, are there any other particular racing events or series that you would like to compete in?
1: (laughs) I, I really don't get a lot of time to race. But sometimes I get into the seat in, uh, in some of the four-hour races, maybe the 300 Enduros at Wakefield and uh, Wakefield, uh, Winton, Sydney Motorsport Park. I've done a lot of Enduros there. And sometimes I partner guys in production car races and the Enduros because you bring them along with you. They see how you operate on the day and it starts to become second nature for them. So if you if you set a good example, which I try all the time, to uh, bring these folks along, I, I quite enjoy it, but time is a bit of a problem for us. But uh, the other thing with if I have a drive, I'm always thinking what's this going to look like for for my co-driver sitting outside, i better not make a mistake. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> it, really, it really sharpens you up. Since we've started to do a lot more coaching, my, uh, my reaction times have really improved.
0: All right. Well, we're just about done here on this episode of Checkered Flag Chat, but the segment that we always finish up with on the podcast, it's called Checkered Flag Choices. Oh don't, don't, don't panic. It's, it's very easy. It's, it's basically just like speed dating by another name. So the way it works is that I ask you five questions and you answer them. So question number one, what's your favourite
1: holiday destination? Mauritius. How come? It's a great place to go to and not a lot of Aussies go there. Nice. Who are three people you would invite to dinner? Unfortunately, Graham Heath, Shane Fowler... He's our resident idiot. And Lachlan Mansell. Oh, thank you. You're the first person that I've had on this podcast who would
0: invite me to dinner. So I do appreciate that. Shane Fowler, for those who don't know, does a lot of the graphic design and um, and signage on race cars. And he's not a bad steerer. Yeah,
1: he's got better since we got hold of him.
0: Question number three, what's your dream car?
1: Uh, That would prove difficult for me because I don't really have one. Having been in the motor trade at the times, we've been through and driven hundreds and hundreds of cars. So to me, to be honest with you, I really honestly don't have one. I view them a little bit as metal and rubber. But if I went back, wow, I really don't have a favourite car. I'm not not one-eyed about a car whatsoever. I did enjoy my XK150 while I had it, which is an old Jaguar. Question number
0: four, what's the best advice you've been given about motorsport?
1: Well, the best advice is a, is a compilation of a few things being, as we've touched on before, slow down and go faster. And that, that really probably encompasses, uh, if you know how to interpret that, the, the overall answer to that question, slow down, go faster.
0: Love it. And fifth and final question, who is the racing driver who you respect the most? Well, apart from my,
1: my Butte co-driver, Ron Gillard, a guy that's done a lot that nobody ever talks about is a guy named Bruce Stewart. Now, he's driven everything. And if you look at his bio, you'd be blown away by it. And he is a great, great driver and a lovely fellow. He drove with Bob Pearson. Did he not? At He's driven with everyone, mm. and on it. The other guy that was very good, I must say, was Don Smith, who raced a lot with Bo Seaton. He was he a lovely guy and could drive anything that he went into, and he was another unsung hero. Mm.
0: All right, well, there we go. That wraps it up for another episode of Check and Flag Chat. Phil, thanks very much for your time.
1: Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you.
0: It was fascinating to hear all about Phil's motorsport career and his raceway track time organisation provides a valuable contribution to the racing community by introducing new people to the sport. Phil gave us some key takeaway points that are useful for those new to the car racing scene, ...as well as those who've been in it for a few years. Firstly, you have to learn to fly a Cessna before you progress to a jumbo jet. In the long run, it'll be beneficial for your racing technique... ...if you hone your skills in a modestly powered car before moving up to something faster. There are also valuable things you can learn from front-wheel drive cars. Secondly, it's worth driving a manual car on the road for six months... So, the habits become second nature before you hit the racetrack. And finally, Phil mentioned it a couple of times, but I'll reiterate it slow down to go faster. I'm Lockie Mansell, thanks for listening.